Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How often have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or that topic or thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just sit down with him and talk about all the stuff that didn't quite make it into the homily? Well, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, to their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're in every Sunday in the pew or a Christmas and Easter, or maybe you can't even remember the last time you went to Mass, we're here for you. So Father Daniel Scheitz, the pastor, among other things, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So Father Dan, welcome back, and thank you for spending more time with me and with our listeners. You know, our topic today should be a simple one, really. It's it's marriage. I mean, I think most people would think that's a simple topic. You know, it's one of the sacraments. We we all learn about it in our catechesis classes. A man and a woman, they tie the knot, they have a big party, lots of gifts, pretty rings, nothing to it, really simple, but not so much. <laughs> so we, we can't really talk much about marriage today without trying to define what we're talking about, whereas you know, not that long ago, it was a universal definition. We wouldn't have needed to define that. But it's been redefined legally in a, in a way that's endorsed by by our Supreme Court. So it's it's no longer that simple definition of a man and a woman, at least not from a legal standpoint. As we begin this topic, the definition of marriage, what are some of the first thoughts that come to mind? Well, the first thoughts come from God because he thought about it before we thought about it. And even when one looks at the whole span of, of biblical revelation, it starts with a couple created in the image and likeness of God. So marriage is at the very beginning of the intentionality of God. And then also at the end of scriptural revelation in the book of Revelation, Heaven is described as a marriage feast and the bridegroom is Christ himself, God in our flesh. And the bride is the church, the, the human race uh, reunited and transformed in God. And so it's, it's important to understand that marriage isn't first something that we invent. It's rather what, what we inherit as, as a, a gift from the author of life. And even though I've, I've made reference to the faith right off the bat, it also needs to be said that the truth of marriage is, is accessible in both a, a plain and a profound way, accessible to human reason. So a child, for example, all things being equal, is conceived by the union sexually of a man and a woman. We can talk about all sorts of technological manipulations of that basic fact, but the human race passes by way of a man becoming a father 
and a woman becoming a mother and children in that action as they're conceived, deserving the father and mother to be husband and wife, precisely because the child literally is the union, physical and spiritual, of of that man and that woman. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, listeners, this is the last week of Advent. And if you're a reader of news, you know that very recently, uh, President Biden signed what's called the Respect for Marriage Act. He signed that into law. So it's now the, the law of the land. And so I was just reading a little bit about that. And I found this quotation from the president. It said, today is a good day. A day in America takes a vital step towards equality for liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone. I thought, this is, I'm liking the sound of this. This sounds good. And he says, it's a day toward creating a nation where decency, dignity, and love are recognized, honored, and protected. Well, then I read that. I thought, this sounds like something I could get behind. Then, of course, I read a lot of other things about it after that, some things by people like Catholic Vote and even the USCCB that is concerned about what the law actually says as opposed to what people say that it, that it says. But from your perspective, this Respect for Marriage Act, what, what, does it, what does it mean for marriage and for the country? Well, I would say that it's based on an understanding of the human person that is fundamentally flawed. It treats the partners in marriage as having a certain biological interchangeability to them that in actual fact, in actual uh, life as, as lived, uh, produces more and more instability in cultures that embrace it. So when equality is put forward as a type of undifferentiation of fatherhood and motherhood as being constitutively necessary for the, the conception, the, the rearing of, of children, that's, that's actually a sign that, that things are, are radically amiss. Mm. I will say, and it does need to be affirmed, that even in the legislation that was passed by the current Congress, signed by the current president, the language very carefully stipulates that those who hold to the traditional view of marriage as being one man and one woman, that that is to be considered, quote, decent and honorable, unquote. And even in the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage, there is a very interesting quotation, quote, many who deem same-sex marriage to be wrong reach that conclusion based on decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises, and neither they nor their beliefs are disparaged here, unquote. So that's the Supreme Court speaking there in the Obergfell decision which gets echoed in the recent legislation in Congress, which states, quote, diverse beliefs about the role of gender in marriage are held by reasonable and sincere people based on decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises. Therefore, 
Congress affirms that such people and their diverse beliefs are due proper respect, unquote. Now, we're going to get some litigation on what due respect means. And it's a sign that we're living in troubled times that the Congress actually has to spell out that that portion of people who until yesterday believed that marriages between one man and one woman for life have to be somehow protected. Well, well for, con- for context, you know, you're, you're referenced Obergefell. I may say this incorrectly, but the push for this legislation, the Respect for Marriage Act, was in case Obergefell was reversed. Correct. Um, and then it would there would be a law that that would be there in the void, so to speak, in case that law would be reversed because there are those that were afraid Obergefell could be overturned based on the Roe decision. Correct, um, correct. So this this is trying to say, I guess, in law, everything that Obergefell said, which is why I guess there's such similarity in that language. Yes, and I... Just as a matter of of civics and the study of the history of our nation, I would strongly encourage the reading of the the four descents from Obergfell, um, each of which, in different ways, underlines the importance of understanding marriage as between one man and one woman. So those would be the opinions of uh, Justices Alito. Roberts, Thomas, and the third one, or the fourth one currently escapes me, but it'll, it'll come back. I, I should also point out, before talking too much further into the weeds of, of legalities, that there is a deep truth that is, is trying to be affirmed albeit in a in a confused way namely that the love between two males is meant to have a social place its perfection though is in brotherhood rather than spousehood mm. the the love of two females even lifelong commitment has a social place and it's actually necessary for, for human flourishing, but its perfection is sisterhood, not spousehood. And then when one asks, well, why is that? It's important to understand that the very nature of what it is to be conceived as a human being intrinsically demands that. So I, I repeat that when when the sperm meets the egg and fusion of those two create a human life distinct from the mother and the father, even if cells split and we have twins, whatever. The fact that what is conceived in that moment is distinct from the two and will bear... The, the deep traits of of each of the two, so it won't be a clone of one. That truth demands social recognition and protection. And for the past many decades now, we've been living the effects of attempts to sunder that connection, to, to think that children are simply a right 
of whoever, whatever combination of people wants to conceive and rear them with whatever technological manipulations will give people what they want. And I think the reason that we're seeing this legislation now is the opposite of social progress. I think it's a symptom of cultural entropy. Mm. So the the bonds of of friendship that traditionally have united people in in networks of um, of familial care and also just taking care of one another locally in a social setting uh, as those fray and fragment we we see ever multiplying forms of of temporary commitment that can be done and undone according to uh, people's will. I mean, I think you're saying essentially or importantly that this goes beyond church because there are those that would say, well, you Catholics are trying to impose what you think is right on us, but the us is bigger. Uh, and it's not just a, a church topic, but it feels like when we're trying to describe gay marriage, you know, there are those I'm sure that would say, well, you have your marriage, we have our marriage, but it's not that way. And I think where some of the, I know personally where it became apparent is that now the thing that I have as a husband is the same as the thing that you have in title, but yet those two things are not the same. That's that's tough because that's a tough intersection between sort of church and state, isn't it? Yes. And as St. John Paul II famously said, salvation passes by way of the family. The, the, the future of the human race passes by way of the family. And children conceived outside of the union of a mother and father united as husband and wife are very vulnerable. And that puts additional pressures on the educational system, the social services system, the political system, law enforcement, especially with the devastation of fatherlessness. And until those roots of the social malaise are addressed, the multiplication of new ways to give isolated individuals what they want is is actually not going to move things forward, as we're seeing, because no sooner is is gay marriage proposed as legitimate, normal, even though as late as 2012, then President Obama uh, professed to believe in traditional marriage as the only thing that could be socially recognized as such. Now it's right away linked with transgenderism. And as President Biden has said on numerous occasions, he believes that transgender rights and and mainstreaming the marginalization of male and female is, and I quote, the social rights issue of our time. And and it's it's astonishing. It is directly opposed to Catholic teaching, both in terms of, of faith and reason, and it embraces the spirit of the age, a type of individualism where the, the will pursues what the will pursues and, and uses 
modern medicine technology to to get what it wants. I find it interesting. I in my research, I came across a, a YouTube video where then I believe Vice President Biden was being interviewed, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Nobody debates that. I do remember him saying that phrase. Now, certainly opinions, are, our way of thinking changes. But to your point, it hasn't been that long ago that this was not a topic. It feels like it's just become a topic almost overnight. In a democracy, you have the will of the people being what tends to guide things. And the will of the people is a, it's a fickle, changeable thing. And when the spirit of the age blows in a certain direction of technological mastery of every aspect of what it is to be human, this is the larger context in which we live. This isn't a question of good guys and bad guys. This is a question of, of really the, the logic of the Tower of Babel. Because once human beings claim the, the right to machine the body to make it a kind of gestational carrier for other people's children and, and the, the trafficking in sperm and eggs, that very same logic leads to, to human life being created for destruction, for, yeah. Harvesting uh, organs and the like. Yeah. All of it. And it ultimately leads to the eclipse of, of a community grounded in something deeper than its own will and expertise. And, and so when the church says the nose to to these actions it's it's actually in view of a of a greater deeper yes because children for example who are going through adolescence wondering who they are the last thing they need are moneyed organizations trying to capture their will, their attention to their, their money-making ability to make them dependent in a lifelong way on drugs mm. and, and surgeries. And this is, this is where it leads. It's, it's all connected. Mm. Now, we live in the Midwest, and I think there's a, sometimes in the Midwest, there's a sense of, I don't really care what you do as long as it doesn't affect me and right. what, what I do, sort of a, almost a frontierism Mindset. So I know there are those that would say, if two men have a relationship or two women have a relationship and they choose to live together, whether they're physically intimate or not, they want to combine their retirement plans or, right. or they want to have each other the, the benefactor of each other's will and things like that. I know there are, there are people who would say, that's none of my business. They can do that. And I don't want laws that interfere with that. But once we called that marriage, then people started paying, I think, closer attention. But how do we speak to people who would, who would say those things? I really think the realm of, of brotherhood and sisterhood and whatever types of civilly recognized contractual relationships that respect 
the bonds, even the lifelong bonds of, of people who want to make these arrangements, that, that actually isn't the, the issue at hand. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of room for, for those kind of distinctions and those kind of legal advances. But what, what the true believers in, in these issues come down to really is the, the conception and rearing of children and doing that on one's own terms and there's there's just no avoiding it. So at the beginning of my priesthood, when I would sign the marriage licenses, the spaces would read bride and groom. Even on the commemorative copy, it would be bride and groom. And then at a certain point, the spot the spaces on the forms got turned into applicant one, applicant two, and then on the commemorative form, you get five lines: witness, witness, officiant. And the other two lines are blank. There's an absence there. And that is a change. And the fact that certain words are now becoming outlawed. Mm. So, for example, the most recent Congress has changed the way legislation is to be written from now on so that the words husband, wife, mother, father, are eliminated, mm. eliminated. So, you know, in, in George Orwell's novel, 1984, that spoke of, you know, the government just scrubbing out of existence the, the most normal language, the most basic vocabulary that everyone had taken for granted. Like, we're actually living in that dystopia right now. And so the fact that a school teacher in a government-run school can't even address children in the most basic, straightforward way as male or female is an upending of reality <laughs> that, that most of the human beings who've ever lived would just be slack-jawed in beholding. But I, I do think the church, as St. Paul VI famously said, the church is an expert in humanity and every human being labors under desires that for one reason or another are wounded or aren't attaining the, the proper goal. And, and so the merciful thing isn't to, to pretend that those perfective goals don't exist and to normalize behavior that that's out of order with those. It's, it's, it's actually to help people grow in, in this case, brotherhood and sisterhood. So much of human life has just been eroticized, sexualized, and it's just pervasive. So the, the technologies that get inside the homes get inside people's heads, their souls, to essentially enslave them to a to a sexual ideal that is just crazy, for lack of a better word. There has to be a, a deeper discernment of the very technological means that are attacking relation, 
rather than thinking that this is about attacking people, mm. it's not. I mean, I find it interesting, the, the quote that you read from the law that, you know, you, you could have these views that you're describing and, and they're not based in bigotry. They could be based in religious or natural law thought, but it doesn't, it doesn't make you a hater for pointing these things out. But yet many would label what you just said probably is hate speech. Exactly. And the late Justice Scalia pointed that out in, in his dissent that the legalization of, of same-sex marriage is not a neutral act regarding people who hold to a traditional understanding of marriage. They, they are labeled as, as haters and, and deplatformed. Mm. So we're, we're actually living in the midst of, of this right now, but I think the solution is actually just the formation of ordinary networks of friendship relating to each other in, in ways that mm. treat our common humanity <laughs> with respect and in simple ways. And where there needs to be correction offered when it comes to sexual activity that just isn't good, mm. that's an act of charity and it's, it's not a prejudice. Well, I mean, along those lines, the, the church, the Catholic church is often criticized by Catholics and non-Catholics or Christians and non-Christians for her position on this topic of, of so-called gay marriage. Is the church hostile to those who uh, I would rather say are experiencing same-sex attraction, but even those that are participants in a so-called gay marriage? Is the church hostile to those individuals? The church is fundamentally a mother who loves her children, and every parent has to bear the weight of, of children, even in adulthood, making choices that, that are wrong, that are harmful. And a parent proposes the truth, proposes the, the way back, but, but the parent never hates the, the children. Every, I think every parent in one way or another has, has heard a variation of, of the childlike cry, I, I hate you, you're mean, <laughs> you don't understand me, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there are difficult truths of relational maturity that, that need to be stated uh, from the heart of love. Well, I guess and, this, this is a relevant point for all church teachings, but some are more difficult than others. That's right. Um, so, for example, when, when Christ himself goes to the, the well at midday and meets a woman getting water there and has a conversation with her, pretty quickly gets into some of the woman's deepest commitments and some of the woman's deepest wounds— he doesn't pretend that everything is all right in her life. He certainly doesn't condemn her, but he speaks the truth. And he, he tells her point blank that the guy that you say you're married to right now, you're actually not. He's not your husband. And at first the woman gets defensive, but precisely because the conversation is had in, in the context of love, there's an openness to 
to change and and to talking about what what deeper what deeper is going on throughout my 20 years of ministry as a priest i've i've attempted to minister to the full spectrum of of people carrying any number of gifts any number of wounds and burdens and people who have same sex attraction have very particular feelings of isolation and belittlement. They can feel marginalized. So even on the one hand where a reasonable person could conclude by how often gay relationships are talked about in the culture that, that you know, it's mainstreamed, it's normal, it's popular. The experience of of people with same-sex attraction is is often a very deep-seated feeling of of not being understood, not being respected, and the challenge for for conversation in this context is to create a space where the fullest possible humanity of a person is is acknowledged and 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 talked through but within that there there is always the fact that for example the anus is an exit not an entrance the the throat is not a womb and to understand the implications of that is a way of approaching well how does every male carry down to the, the spiritual genetics, a spiritual brotherhood, a spiritual husbandry, a spiritual fatherhood? How does every female down to the spiritual genetics carry a spiritual sisterhood, spiritual wifehood, spiritual motherhood? That is a far more engaging proposition than trying to normalize sexual behavior that is is just fundamentally not good. I mean there are plenty within the church that we could we could google search that would that would disagree with you. Yes. Uh, as you know I, I'm thinking just of a, a Father James Martin and some of his writings and a lot of the interviews that have been done which can be confusing to sort of in the pew Catholics, yes. right? Someone listening to this who knows someone or is someone who is in a same-sex relationship or experiences same-sex attraction, but desperately wants to be Catholic, what do they do from a practical standpoint? I would ask them to, first of all, be on the lookout for people who are actively practicing the faith in a, a robust, joyful way. and and simply reach out to them in friendship and don't don't right away make everything about what hurts mm. <laughs> in a sense the way forward is is to enter a world larger than one's sexual preoccupations and and desires i'd also recommend praying about 
meeting a priest who would be wise, good, relatable, and that's going to take some some discernment. We have in our diocese a chapter of courage, a ministry set up for people with same-sex attraction. Currently in the Fort Wayne area, Father Bill Coomer is is heading that up, and he's just a, a wonderful, deeply empathetic priest. I've had in my ministry any number of men who have who have lived the so-called gay lifestyle have have actually come to see the the wisdom of the church's teaching and who are actually willing and happy to speak with people who are struggling in this area who who are actually looking for accompaniment by people who've who've been there done that and and are looking for a friendship based on that level of accompaniment. I'd also recommend there's a, a volume written, let me see if I can remember the title. It is called, Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. The subtitle is, How I Reclaimed My Sexual Reality and Found Peace. The author is Daniel Mattson, M-A-T-T, S-O-N. And I, I find it to be the best, the best book I've ever read on the topic. And I would actually recommend that, that this is an immensely helpful book for anybody in, in a relationship, especially just the, the sexual dimension of, of a relationship. So it's not simply for people with uh, same-sex attraction. Daniel Matson, Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. So where where do we see this going if it if it runs its sort of natural course you might say and I, when I say that I'm speaking about sort of the church positions and the church teachings is this part of something larger I'm I'm thinking of some of the the synod activity that we hear about maybe centered in the German church yes. uh, with the bishops is this part it's of something clear, larger It's clear that there are certain priests like Father Martin and certain bishops, including the one who is heading up the synodal way, who are persuaded that the church is going to or should change her teaching in this area. And it's not going to happen. It cannot happen. And this is the moment to call those shepherds to to conversion. I actually think the largest struggle of our time is actually not primarily a sexual one, although it involves uh, the sexual dimension of our being human. I, I believe it's one of technological domination of the human person. And the sooner we realize that, I think the clearer the battle lines are going to be. We, we are living in a time in which governments and transnational organizations are marshalling the most sophisticated tools of medicine technology to gain control over what it is to be human. For whatever purposes, uh, you know, to keep the revenue stream going, to keep the, none of the, the masses no, of the population. Right. 
And the happy battle of our age is recovering fundamentally what it is to be human. And I think it all comes down to, to networks of friendship and, and those networks can be formed uh, at very deep levels also by people who disagree about all sorts of things. So I'm, I'm friends with any number of people who wouldn't share my views at deep levels. And there's a mutual understanding that, that we're committed to the deepest possible goods about what it is, what it is to be human. And so in that respect, I, I actually think the antidote to the cultural entropy is just returning to just more ordinary forms of, of being human. But, you know, someone could say, oh, Father Dan, he just hates cell phones. But, but it's actually much bigger than that. The cell phone is just one little symptom of a much larger disease, you might say. Right. And if it were only the cell phone, <laughs> but it's actually not just the cell phone. It's yeah, the television, the computer, but, but it's, the way, it's the way we conduct business. It's the way we organize food production and consumption. It's the way we entertain ourselves. And, and for most of human history, human beings would provide their own entertainment. So I'm, I'm talking about something as basic as going to the Stroud home and singing together around the piano, which I have done very happily. It's actually the recovery of our own human agency to do the most basic of human things without the kind of technological mediation that sucks our soul out of us. I'm sure you experienced during the height of the pandemic, the death of people alone, this aloneness. And, and it was shocking to anyone who had a chance to witness it or had a loved one participate in that. But it, it seems to me listening to you that that's really a slap in the face of sort of the nth degree of lack of relationship when one has to die by themselves. Yes. Well, and in Japan, this is taking on a particularly strange aspect because there are whole apartment blocks of people living alone and sometimes the body won't be found for, for weeks or even months. And, and the Japanese government is involved in, in pioneering robots to provide some type of uh, artificial comfort care and also to provide warning in medical emergencies. But that is not a human future. At our Christmas program a few days ago, I, after the program, came across in the hall a child who couldn't have been over four years old. And he was glued to the cell phone, just walking like a zombie. And he was playing a game, and I greeted him. And there was no recognition that I even existed. He, he was in a different zone. And unless and until everyone, regardless of what desires are percolating in them, everyone focuses on how is that child going to live a human life? That child who is the union of one man and one woman. 
And, and until we structure the networks of friendship around that multidimensional good and then craft laws that are reflective of those cultural goods, we, we actually aren't going to attain the flourishing to which we, we so desperately aspire. Christ said it best when he said that I've come that they might have life and have it in abundance. And with the eclipse of God, that kind of practical atheism where the, the technology is the godlike substitute, that necessarily leads to the eclipse of, of man. And that's what has to be recognized, and that's, that's what we have to, to work through. Well, that sounds like a great uh, spiritual exercise until the next uh, episode. We'll talk more on this. <laughs> Probably many more. We, we must talk more about relationships, relationships between men and between women and how they differ and maybe their importance and, and some other things. But thanks for sharing these terrific thoughts on this important and timely topic. Thank you, Chris. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation of After the Homily as much as I have. Uh, I hope you'll plan to join us regularly, and I hope you'll tell all your friends to join us as well. Are there topics you'd like to hear from Father Dan about? Do you have a question that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org. That's S-A-I-N-T-V dot O-R-G. And type after the homily in the subject, or you can text me directly at 260-450-8878. And please text or start the message with After the Homily. Thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt.